Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Hey, we've all done shitty stuff before. Most of us aren't as proud of it as you seem to be. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today's the third day of the Republican convention. How come you're not there? <laughs> you know, uh, I come from a long line of, of, of Republicans, actually. I don't know if I've ever said that. Are your parents Republican? Do um, they vote Republican? Par- well, so my parents were Republican. My At, at least my mother hasn't—I don't think she's voted Republican— in a while she's a public she was a public school teacher for a while yeah. um my father's just fiscally conservative immigrant from latin america who who thinks that the free market is the, the whole point of coming here to the u.s but even they are disgusted by trump i actually my sister texted me last night she's like are you watching this like shit show basically you know yeah and i was like you couldn't pay me like you just could not pay me to yeah. watch I, you can't even I won't even click on like YouTube clips, just none of it. I, it is as common a way of describing Trump and the whole way he carries himself and self-promotes. And the most common thing that people say is it's disgusting or it's gross. Um, it, gross yeah. is like a word I hear a lot. That's it, actually sort of interesting. Yeah. Know? Well, it's also what he what he uses quite a bit to, to yeah. condemn others. So, so, you know, he had his famous comments about Hillary going to the bathroom. I got interviewed. I think it was the new Republic some, somewhere. There's like a Trump and politics of disgust thing where, where they asked me to chime in on it. I was like, yeah, that's, that's What'd you exactly, say? that's exactly what people do. <laughs> Trump is a good, Trump is very, is very He's effective. effective. But, yeah. yeah. No, but, but let's, let's okay. just say, Briefly, why we're focusing yeah. on this aspect of Trump. Not because we've become political all of a sudden. We're now competing with 538. As, <laughs> um, even though we're recording this again two weeks before. But no, it's because we are doing an episode today on repugnance or the wisdom of repugnance. This is <laughs> this was actually, once again, we had to come up with a topic really quickly because you're about to leave out of the That's country right. again. You're just like this globe-trotting playboy, like <laughs> like a little like Trump. Uh, <laughs> My 11-year-old daughter really helps me with that. You know? <laughs> I bet she does. It gives you some credibility. And so, Why are we in two? Why did we get two hotel rooms, Dad? <laughs> Shut up. You got a king. Go to your room. I'll see you in a week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
So somebody said we were requesting, and we still this request is still open for ideas for our hundredth episode. And somebody said we should give examples of repugnance, like how repugnant we have been on our podcast. Just an hour of the most repugnant things we've said, and so that word stuck into my head. It, it struck me that there is this fairly it's a famous essay maybe not in philosophical circles um but famous at the time that it came out in the new republic called um the wisdom of repugnance the wisdom of repugnance by um leon cass leon the bioethics (laughs) committee i guess clinton's bioethics committee. no he was he was george bush's bioethicist Oh, he was George, but he talks about Clinton. But anyway, it was a very well-known essay, if only as something that people argued against. You you are probably one of the leading world experts on disgust, (laughs) which is why the New Republic turns to you as well. Finally, I get the credit. I deserve Leon Cass, (laughs) but you too. Um, Yeah, most famously, I think Steve Pinker had some, you know, I, I... think a public argument with him um but he definitely mentions and, him in his and book. martha nussbaum too right very right. much um opposed to his view which is captured i think nicely by the title if not necessarily by the argument that he makes um that there is something wise about our disgust reaction that that gives us some sort of moral insight and most people i think you included argue that disgust does not give us any moral insight at all. And so that's what we're going to talk about in the second segment. Right. Before we get to the second segment, um, I wanted to say one really quick thing about about the the Republican National Convention and just politics in general, which is... Don't plagiarize? You know, my Twitter feed is obviously going to be filled with people who, who aren't Republican. And um, I was checking Twitter last night and... It was mostly just a bunch of sort of delight in the the shit show that that was going on. And this is just why I hate politics. Uh, You know, I would say American politics, but I don't really think it's any different unless you're in a totalitarian regime. But to to me, the Republicans collapsing with a shit show, it does not make me feel better at all about anything. Like it's actually (laughs) especially since they still might win. Right. It's not zero sum. Like the failure of the Republican convention is not directly adding to the success of the Democratic one in any way. Like given what we know about human beings, like it's not really going to convince people who are going to vote for Trump not to vote for Trump. And it's it's, no, no, I agree. So there's a celebration in a weird way where I'm like, oh, man, this really like this. We should just be crying about this shit. (laughs) No, we should be upset about it genuinely. And and there's a lot of which is amazing. There is a lot of people who are just at every point that Trump does something that is that just seems, you know, ludicrous, seems incompetent, seems racist, seems bombastic. They say, well, this is going to be the thing that this is the tipping point. So the latest thing. And again, this episode won't come out for almost two weeks, but is Melena Trump that that's his wife's plagiarizing Michelle Obama's bald face like and essentially you read a bunch of these articles that say like trust me I know I was wrong the last 50 times but this time this is really gonna sink the Trump campaign and it just 
doesn't seem to be happening. He's just been rising and rising in the polls. 538 had him at 40% chance of winning the election, which is Jesus somewhat Christ. terrifying. Not that I understand statistics that much, but I, you know, you, you're kind of at that point, you got to take your umbrella if it's a 40% chance of rain. You know, I, I heard. <laughs> like, like you're taking basically you're saying like, yeah, take your umbrella. 40% chance. Nate Silver was on a radio show and somebody said, so 40%. So what is that? Like, what does that mean in terms of the probability that he'll win? <laughs> <laughs> Nate Silver but, goes, uh, 40%. <laughs> I, I mean, this is the thing. Like, it's it's kind of a weird thing to deal with these percentages for one, one-time events. Yeah, you know, know. It means like if there were 100 elections, he would win 40 of them. Yeah. But that doesn't make any sense. But it is funny that, yeah, we really don't have – those numbers are not totally useful for us. No, that's why I bring up the umbrella analogy. There's this great website called – I think it's no, called – you mentioned um, this on yeah. the podcast already. <laughs> on the podcast, right. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, so now it's off, off, <laughs> off limits because I've already mentioned right, We've probably once. already talked about the, the wisdom of repugnance, too. Like, <laughs> like the main topic. At great length in, like, episode eight or something. But, yeah, umbrella or not, right? Like, that's all you want to know. Is, is it is it's it, literally, like, I two episodes my... ago, by the way. <laughs> Did I mention umbrella or not? Yeah. Damn and it. I said I don't like umbrellas. I would much rather be out in the rain without an umbrella than have an umbrella and it's not Yeah, rain. that's right. I just figured you cut that. Um, no. <laughs> it was meaningless. <laughs> I, I stand um, by it. But, yeah, I mean, the one-shot probability things, so they're, they're hard to grok. I, you know, this is the thing that people underestimate is how much people, for whatever reason, sexism, just the fact that she's, you know, been involved in a bunch right. of scandals. But people do not like Hillary Clinton, and that's a big thing, you know? Yeah. There's um one of my favorite – this is a really, really nerdy reference, but – People who get it will like it. One of my favorite bumper stickers whenever election season comes around is an image, usually some drawn image of this science fiction beast called Cthulhu. Um, that was a, <laughs> it's like the ultimate evil god in HP Lovecraft stories. Yeah, <laughs> but it says has a little picture of Cthulhu and it says Cthulhu 2016. Why vote for a lesser evil? <laughs> Like, and that's exactly – I think everybody's voting this year to sort of minimize the harm. Yeah, because yeah. I, you know, I, I know a few people who are excited about Hillary, but surprisingly few given that she would be the first female president. Yeah. And yeah. I know a lot of people who are very far on the left who just won't vote for her. People love Bernie, but just not enough people. Just... Yeah, well, you know, Jews, nobody. <laughs> Is he Jewish? Actually, I didn't even know that. So, all right, moving away from politics, because I really, my I, my soul recoils at talking about politics. Um, I really quickly wanted to bring something up because I texted you this morning and I sent you a link and you, I, you have to explain yourself in public here. And you texted me back that you, ha- you don't have internet access on your devices for the next hour. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't open the link. Uh- I was so confused for a second because I'm like, but you got my message. <laughs> Well, right. So I guess so I just downloaded this app. I'm trying to write this book and I just have to take every step that I can to commit myself to not get distracted and not go on, you know, chess.com and do a bunch of chess puzzles. Who's a nerd now? Or yeah, I'm a nerd when it comes to chess. Also not go to ESPN there. That balances it out. Not go to, <laughs> you know, and all this political stuff like I can get sucked down in uh, that too and and Twitter and Facebook and all of it. And so I downloaded this app 
and this program, which I've used in the past, and I may have even mentioned on the podcast in the past, called Freedom, which... Yeah, I think you and Paul had a discussion about this. And, and what it does, so they just came out with a new version. So it used to just only work on your computer. But now this new version allows you to link up your accounts with your phone and iPad and just disable all of it. And there's nothing you can do. But I guess it doesn't disable the phone and the and the uh, texts. Right. But it right. disables everything the browsers, else. And the you can Twitter. put locked to the point where, like, you can beg it, you can get down on your knees, you can restart your computer, you can, you know... It's like uh, your personal, like, uh, dominatrix. You can, like, can say, I'll suck your dick, and it's not going <laughs> to let you back for, online. For, for $5. Repugnant. <laughs> um, very repugnant. Uh, you know, I haven't gotten to this step um, uh, because, uh, you know, I'm just... I'm not, mo- I'm not even that motivated. I'm not even motivated to want to want to do this. Right. Um, See, what this but, is unleashing, I hope, is my true self. Which is, <laughs> cause I really don't like when I, all of a sudden, without even knowing it, have been on, you know, just browsing a bunch of stupid re- websites for 45 it's minutes. like Adderall and, and Reddit. Yeah. Like, you're just, like, lost in, in Wikipedia deep linking. Mr. Robot Theories. <laughs> Mr. Which we'll, which we'll talk about. But you can get stuck on that for... Uh, yeah forever yeah forever but i rely sort of on emails popping up and telling like reminding me all the shit i haven't done but but you're right i think this is this is a guilt this is a self-binding pre-commitment device not the sexy kind of self-binding the the productive kind of wait is that sexy i don't know but the productive kind of really hot about software (laughs) that disables the internet um it just it struck me when i got it for some reason it just struck me as again like as against your character entirely i have weakness of will (laughs) writing i mean especially this stage of writing when it's not revising but it's just actually writing that's that's not fun at all there's nothing fun about it it it's just pain and struggle it's like not as bad as grading but it's Second worst, maybe, to grading. You know, whenever whenever people try to seriously defend a sort of simple hedonic view of sort of psychological hedonism, um, I'm always reminded of my colleagues who talk about writing books. Because here is a case where if there is an ultimate goal of happiness, it is so far removed from anything I ever see you guys express. So, you know, Paul is probably my most prolific friend and and it's just the pain that you describe of the writing the pain of the pain of having a the publisher send you a shitty cover the pain of actually publishing the book and looking at your amazon sales rank the pain of having to go on a book tour speaking of which very bad wizard second edition is out if you haven't got your copy yet please consider (laughs) uh boosting that amazon rating dorothy parker had a great line um, about writing, where someone asked if she liked being a writer, and she says, "I like having written." <laughs> right, you know. <laughs> and there's something mildly satisfying about seeing your book and you know having it come out, you know, having people enjoy it. You know, I've been fortunate for the most part that people have either in- ignored or liked my books the, that have come out. But it's not anywhere near the like it, from a hedonic level. Right. It's like you've kind of already moved on by the time the book ends up actually coming out. It doesn't in any way make up for the the pain that you 
that you right. went through. But it's there's still something sort of worth it about it. Well, of course. I mean, there's a yeah. deep satisfaction of having made a contribution. It's just it seems to me that that any theory that posits happiness as a as a motive um either would have to include the caveat that most people then can do do things with the completely irrational expectation of happiness over and over again um or just that we don't do things for like that kind of happiness right we we do it we do it we do for some satisfaction things, but not to the deeper satisfaction that you wouldn't describe as pleasurable you wouldn't describe as i don't know like how you would describe it like fulfilling it, good yeah, satisfaction is probably the best. It's it's sati- it's like you put yeah. a goal and you satisfy it. It's it's to you know, it's like it's not even like a it's like a you know what it's like? It's like a shitty video game. Like real like good video games keep you motivated in that flow state cuz you're you know, they always regulate how difficult it is versus how, you know, how much you can succeed. And those are the ones that keep you hooked. But life is just like a really poorly designed <laughs> video game where you can't really opt out. I mean, you can, but that's kind of shitty too. Uh, if you kill yourself? Yeah, yeah, well that's yeah, that's that what I meant by opting out. out. Yeah. yeah. Um uh, and and you you it's like it's like one of those overly complicated games that I've tried to play sometimes where I just get lost and then I'm just walking around and like <laughs> how the hell do I do how do I get the lantern of glory you know like I don't wait wait what's is the lantern of glory again what is your lantern of glory <laughs> My lantern of glory we should send that out to the listeners listeners what is your lantern <laughs> of glory it sounds video actually, game of life we I do a really just sarcastic podcast called the lantern of glory where you talk positively about life we can talk about all the positive psychology stuff <laughs> um what happened to that is that still a thing positive, positive psychology psych- hey, i mean templeton keeps funding it i think it's going to continue to be a thing for uh, i haven't heard much about it yeah you know it's sort of like fmri research it's like <laughs> it's more fun to, it's more fun to poo poo it but there's still a lot of people plugging away well Hedonism it does explain why I continue to do this podcast well into episode ninety five. So yeah, God, what could po- what theory could possibly explain that? All right, um, let's take a break, and when we come back, we will talk about the wisdom of repugnance or lack thereof.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. As a launching pad, we're going to use Leon Cass's very well-known article from the New Republic, The Wisdom of Repugnance on the Issue of Human Cloning. Uh, but you especially have devoted a lot of your research to this question of disgust and moral judgment and the relationship therein. And I've even written a review of a book that talked about that by a really good book by Dan Kelly called Yuck. Um, it's a surprisingly lucid review. It's like it's like like a clarity of thought that I that I've only ever seen you exhibit in writing. <laughs> rare rare form. I I think I'm a clear writer, just not no, a clear no, you, thinker. You you are. I yeah. just it just didn't like I wanted to hire your ghostwriter. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not for sale. <laughs> Before we get to that, I wanted to thank everybody for all the different ways that they support the podcast. First and foremost, to our Patreon supporters, our Patreon patrons. You can support us by pledging just a little bit of money per episode, however much you feel comfortable doing, however much fits into your budget. And you can find out how to do that on um, www.patreon.com slash very bad wizards. Um, there are right now three different levels of support that give you three different levels of goodies, but everybody who supports it gets a newsletter with our recommendations. You can also support us on the very bad slash support page by clicking the Amazon link and then doing your normal shopping at Amazon, and we will get a small percentage of that that and you can paypal us directly if you want to just give a one-time donation that's also available at the support page on verybadwizards.com oh by the way uh, really quickly did you see that that um uh, because we have a, a a not safe for work tag it used to be impossible for people to use paypal to donate to us but they actually just changed that. So. Oh, so now people can PayPal. Yeah, because we yeah. got a bunch of requests about that. People saying they couldn't um, support us because they didn't have a credit card, but they did PayPal. So now you can uh, do PayPal on Patreon. That's great. And we, we're just so happy. We're, so, we're, we're very proud of the number of people and the, the amount. That's it's really heartwarming. You can also rate us on iTunes if you want to find other ways of supporting us. Rate us on iTunes. Write a review. We just got another bad review on iTunes. Did you see that? It's yeah. It's our second real one star review. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had one one star review that was a rave in the text of the review. But. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, this person, whoever it was, uh, basically tried to listen to our first episode and and gave up. <clears throat> probably wise. <laughs> it's probably wise. Speaking of repugnance. You know, I think it's totally fair. If you probably listen to any random snippet of twenty minutes of us, you you might yeah <laughs> you might not get good feelings about it. Casual homophobia love... and sexism is what she said. Yeah, and so you re- like... and you told me there's nothing casual about. <clears throat> there's that, nothing though. casual about my sexism, my homophobia, my any ism or my racism. I I as I maintain, not yeah. casual at all. No. <laughs> Stand no. by. Them. Uh, you know, if if we did say something that was either taken in context or out of context um that was i i believe it i mean i'm gonna be the last one to deny any any bad shit on my end especially given the the recent twitter account to be BBW. honest i'm 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 really surprised that more of that doesn't happen i know it's weird you know i i i was actually bothered i mean i was actually bothered you know me 
I was actually bothered by it. And and to the extent I will say I'm only half joking when I say these things are are implicit and pernicious and not casual at all. But like almost this podcast is my therapy to try to like, you know, I think that it's actually provided growth to be able to talk about some of this shit and get corrected in some cases. Even though your anti-Semitism has gotten worse, though, so going against your view about well, I think this very bad wizard's no context Twitter account has had a chilling effect. So you're, you're oh no, <laughs> Boy, I'm gonna censor myself from now on. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> in keeping with my general view, that iTunes review did not bother me at all. Uh, yes, no. But I, um, every once in a while, someone will tweet us, uh, will, will tweet the Very Bad Wizards account or tweet us and, and complain about something. I always send you telepathic signals. Don't <laughs> respond. Don't engage. <laughs> don't do it. it you don't want to get sucked down into that. Uh, yeah. Let them yeah. have their little anonymous I, say and I'm, move uh, on. But one of the things that I really love about our listeners is that to me – and in sort of keeping with some of the things we've talked about in our last couple of episodes, to me, the listeners who have chided us the most severely have been people who open up by saying, I'm a listener and I love what you guys are doing, but you said yeah. this. Right, and right. That's they'll just different. dig yeah. into us, right? And that that to me is totally fair. And if and I would be a hypocrite if I didn't actually listen to that. No, it's, the, it's more the, the, the trolling tweets that I'm <laughs> yeah. talking about, not yeah. the, like we get long emails. And but it, speaking of our email, that you can send us one of these long emails, either complimenting or criticizing um, an episode at verybadwizards at gmail dot com, and you can tweet us at Tamler at verybadwizards at peas. That's you. So we really appreciate all the ways you reach out to us and feel free to bash us or praise us. We really love to hear from you. That's that's the reason, I think, if we had to give the number one reason that we do the podcast, it's that we get to interact with listeners and in really rewarding ways. And like you said, there's personal growth that goes on. I hope. God damn it, because if not. What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? What, what, what's the ma- what is it? The magic lantern? The, the <laughs> <laughs> lantern of glory. You listeners are our lantern, lantern of glory. Our lanterns of glory. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's get on to the the topic of the podcast of today. repugnance. Yes. So, so you suggested uh, this topic, and as you said, you know, because I do work on disgust, I was like, no, we've already discussed this to death. But but in fact, the last time we actually discussed it, for those of you who might want to listen, was way back in episode eight, where we had, I think, I thought a decent discussion on this. But but uh, I think the problem eight is was that Ar- I, Ariely. Um, I think it was six and seven were the two utilitarian ones. Uh, uh, it was episode seven, Psychopaths and Utilitarians, um, <clears throat> where we ended up getting on on the role of emotions. And we played the eat the poo poo. Oh, can we play that? It's been a while. It's been too long. I haven't seen I've taken time to do a little research to know what homosexuals do in the privacy of their bedroom. One of the things they do is called anal leaking, where they, a, a man's anus is leaked like this by the other person. Like ice cream. Like ice cream. And then what happens, even poo-poo comes out. The other poo-poo's out, huh? and then they eat the poo-poo. Now, if we have any children, please step out. 
This is a parental guidance moment. Hey, that child can be moved out. So you can see a man here having sucked the other person's rectum, and the other person is poo pooing, and this one is eating the poo poo all over the place. We do not want this sickness. This is sick and it's therefore deviant. We do not want it. Yeah, I mean, it is, again, one of those things that you laugh to keep from crying because it's actually like a bit. It's very funny. <laughs> it's <laughs> until you realize people are getting killed. Well, um, yeah, that's, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> so we thought that it would be a good starting off point to discuss this uh, article, The Wisdom of Repugnance by Leon Cass in the New Republic. So this was in 1997, this, but this is a well-known, at least in our circles, as Tamler said, uh, article that was prompted by the cloning of the sheep Dolly, which... I forgot you, about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. First of all, the Dolly, the Dolly was named Dolly because it was a memory clone, a memory cell that it was cloned from. And so, like, that, just that shit alone would get people... Excoriated, right. I think nowadays um, for naming it after like literally the quote from the scientist was like, and we thought of the best mammary glands we could think of, and it was Dolly Parton. <laughs> That's why they named the sheep Dolly. So, <laughs> right. so Leon Cass wrote uh, uh, this article, essentially trying to make the argument that we should ban the cloning of humans. And what Cass. Uh, you know, I think the gist of his argument is that, look, he says, this domain of reproduction and sexuality and of family and of what it means to have offspring, uh, let's not let ourselves get get too caught up in these essentially liberal justice arguments about rights and individuals that are driving people to allow this to happen where he says like you know it's not a matter of whether or not you have the right to clone um to clone yourself to create life remember that reproduction is fundamentally a natural process rooted in our biology it's not a cultural construct this sexuality is he, I don't think he ever says it, but he he really hints at it being a sacred thing. And and he says people's overwhelming reaction to the thought of human cloning is, quote unquote, offensive, grotesque, revolting, repugnant, repulsive. These are the words most commonly heard regarding the prospect of human cloning. Such reactions come both from the man or woman in the street and from the intellectuals, from believers and atheists, from humanists and scientists. Even Dolly's creator has said he would, quote, find it offensive to clone a human being. So he says... Don't just set that emotion aside. Listen to it because it's trying to tell you something important about what we ought to do. There is wisdom in this feeling of repugnance. It means something. And um, and so yeah. let's just start at that mo- at that ground level. So I, what he's saying is that that repugnance that we feel that that, you know, we should take that as informative. It's not sufficient, but it's informative, you know, at least what? gives a pr- prima facie all things being equal in case against it now but just at the at the most basic level is that true that people are grossed out by human cloning yeah well i don't think so and this 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 is the sort of thing where you would want you would want some you know that does seem like a very clear empirical claim um to be most fair to Cass, uh he he is when he's talking about repugnance and revulsion, it's unclear to me that he he necessarily means 
disgust, like the actual sort of nauseating, gut, gut-wrenching feeling. <laughs> that, that feeling of sort of moral repugnance, may, he may or may not mean that it is literally like, like the feeling that you get when you, when you see you know, yeah, no, I, I, I was yeah. wondering that myself. Sometimes he talks as if he is referring to that. Other times it just seems like, like as basic as we find, it seems intuitively wrong. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, that what he means is maybe that sense of violation of a purity norm that, that is not, that is not one about harm, right? It's not one that's about anger or empathy, because I'm not disgusted, certainly at the abstract idea of human cloning. Well, so that's what I was going to ask you. And in yeah. fact, it reads, it reads odd, like because I can't even muster disgust or even repugnance at the idea of human cloning. So I, here's what I think you can muster disgust at. Or correct me if I'm wrong, but I could. I, I, I this seems disgusting to me. Is is not just the idea of cloning, but like that if you watched people trying to clone humans and they're in this lab and you you know you, you see all these sort of like images of like person growing a mouse's ear or like just a person getting deformed because they haven't because they haven't done it properly and all of this is going on in this lab and so when you actually think about like what would have to happen and you kind of try to picture like somebody engaging in this process and trying to perfect it so that it could work that I could see as being, you know, you could see that in a movie or something like that. Yeah, I, like that's a lot of groundwork to muster a feeling of disgust for that because I, I, like I actually, my initial reaction is the thought of two people procreating in the normal way is like way more disgusting. Like an antiseptic lab where people are actually doing things with test tubes to me seems actually pretty cool. Like I, I don't. I need to know. intersperse a joke here. Um, it's a, one of my dad's, may he rest in peace, favorite jokes. A rabbi is in his office reading the Talmud, and a, a young student, a rabbinical student, comes up to him and says, uh, Rabbi, I've been reading, and there's this section, this, par- this portion, where they talk about making love in the irregular way. I, I, I don't know what this means. What does this mean, making love in the irregular way? And the rabbi slaps him across the face and says, the regular way you already know. All right. Yeah. But yeah, the regular way is pretty disgusting. You yeah. Know? I, it, it's, well, uh, your browsing history suggests otherwise, but yeah. Well, until I'm doing it, right? Uh, right. Um, and in fact, there is some evidence that sexual arousal does remove the disgust, but disgust first makes you not easily sexually aroused. But, you know, many people have taken caste to mean, to mean li- like, sort of literal, this literal sort of uh, visceral disgust reaction at it. And, I, I mean, I think that just my inability to even, or, like, the imagination that it requires for me to even get that sense of disgust from the idea of human cloning undermines his arguments to begin with. He's just sort of Assuming that everybody who is in favor of human cloning has has had this feeling and is refusing to listen to it. I mean, there's plenty of things I am disgusted by. Because without that, right, then what are we 
debating where like i don't know if i've read this whole article before it's not what i thought it was because he gives a bunch of arguments against human cloning none of which depend on any sense of repugnance i I think they're actually yeah well i think they're actually weirdly bad arguments as i was reading it i kept waiting for the arguments you know you know when people are breakdancing like and they get in a circle and they start like when one person is about to break dance, they start sort of like jogging around the circle, like getting ready to like hit the floor. I kept thinking like that this was a whole bunch of that just getting ready. Like any minute now he's going to hit the floor and start spinning on his head. And I never really got there. Like it, like and then when he actually got to the arguments, they didn't seem like they, they seemed either irrelevant or if seriously applied could be applied so widely as to as to sort of some of them but others are consequentialist right right what it would take to bring a human into existence there's going to be a lot of deformities there's going to be a lot of mistakes and a lot of suffering that comes with those mistakes by the cloney by the by the organism that's being cloned and that's wrong right I, uh, well I mean, it's it's only wrong, you know. I, it's only wrong if that in fact is what happens, and moreover, if it's any worse than regular old human reproduction, at, right? Like the rates of the rates of birth defects and all of that stuff. He explicitly rejects utilitarian reasoning across a lot of this article, um, except for that example, which is like, well, of course, you know, it's like with GMOs, right? Like if it turns out that it made us sick, like of course I would be against it. Um, but but even like the identity so he talks about the problems of uh, identity and individuality the clone yeah. person will experience concerns about his distinctive identity not only because he will be in genotype and appearance identical to another human being but in this case he may also be a twin to the person who is his father or mother if one can still call them that what would be the psychic burdens of being a child or parent of your twin there might be this is why repugnance has to – it might feel unnatural or fucked up, but it doesn't feel gross, you know? And certainly there are twins. You know, my yeah, sisters are I, twins. I, it's th- not like they have that, trouble distinguishing their identity and individuality. And that's exactly why I feel like that argument never really gets off the ground. For God's sakes, in Star Wars, there's a whole clone army, and they seem fine. <laughs> talking about the prequels because i haven't seen the prequels um no so yeah right and not only that but we do you know uh ivf intravenous fertilization well he was against that briefly that increases the chance of twins like and so you see a lot more twins these days than you used to we already feel clearly comfortable with increasing the number of people who are genetically identical to each other and uh, and again it's not gross even if it's like what is this feeling that he's talking about is it just that it's not natural that it's that's just fucked up that's all i can get is that it's not natural which again you know again anybody who who really bothers to think about whether or not natural is enough to to justify banning a practice like here's where i'm not going to defend Leon Cass. I knew you I, were going to defend Leon Cass. I, I <laughs> uh, you know, there's certain things that I like. He sort of bashes a very dry analytic style. He bashes like I knew you, you were going to get chubby def- when I was defenses. This. I don't think that he thinks that these feelings are sufficient 
for calling something immoral. Well, so I, you said that in your intro, but I don't know that he ever... I think he says that it, this is not something we should ignore, that this is something we should take as important. It is one moral consideration among many, I think. Uh, yeah, but I don't think he says it is one. I mean, I'm no, just but that's, trying to... that's what I get from his from his argument, and, and I think that the... The sort of one bit of evidence from that is that he does feel the need to provide a bunch of arguments and not just say, no, this is gross. I the- feel like he thinks that these are the things that are that are causing him to shudder, his soul to shudder, right? That that this actually, this feeling of repugnance is what ought to defeat all of the liberal rights arguments that it's okay. And that, that what he's arguing in when he's saying the wisdom of repugnance, he's saying like this is this emotion is tracking these evaluations. If you really listen to your disgust response, oh, I see. It, it is there because of these reasons, right? Like it's unnatural. It like defies, I, you know, this personal identity importance and our biologically rooted sense of having two parents. And this is where I just really have to disagree i think that all of the arguments that he gives could be used to apply to all sorts of things that that are perfectly okay okay let's let's i'm going to try to be charitable here right the way i understood him is that there are certain things take in vitro fertilization or take gay marriage right where even though that same argument that he's using could be used to argue against those things. We don't feel repugnance at the idea of gay marriage. Not anymore, right? If Cass is correct, we do feel it. And that's so that's why you can't generalize the argument and say, well, if this is true for cloning, then this would also rule out gay marriage or this would also rule out. But, uh, it would only uh, rule it out if we felt that same sort of repugnance. So this gets to the heart of what is a constant disagreement across across multiple episodes. This is our theme. This is the theme of our disagreement. Yeah. We actually think that he's attempting to make an argument that that this emotion of repugnance or disgust or whatever is tracking a set of reasons for us to reject on moral grounds um, practices like cloning. Um, And I think that then you can evaluate those reasons, and I don't think that those reasons don't apply to the cases of of single parenthood, adoption, gay marriage, all of the kinds of things that, that we find to be morally okay because we actually have a liberal rights sort of uh, assessment of of what's right or wrong in this case if you if you just leave it to the feeling of repugnance without actually defending why those feelings of repugnance are tracking good reasons then i think that you've cut off the branch that you're standing on yeah i okay here's where if you broaden it the idea of repugnance to seems really immoral, right? Yeah. Every argument is going to bottom out eventually, whether it's a liberal rights-based argument or whether it's an argument but against human cloning, right? So, no, 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 no. I don't think so. I well, think that, yeah, no, I mean, I, we, you've said this before a bunch of times, and I think there's a real difference between the sort of bottoming, bottoming out on an intuition that other people should be respected as individual agents and just the 
other people should be respected as individual agents is not an argument. That's an assertion. Okay, so this is why I think this is the most fundamental disagreement that we have, yeah. where I think that you, you think that because there is no sort of like intuition that can fully be justified, that therefore any intuition is valid. And I think that actually there are some fundamental sort of like build like a um like foundational intuitions that build these arguments why we shouldn't have slavery or whatever that are very different from the gross gay marriage kind of arguments even though yeah you can't so as we push sam harris you can't justify why you should care about anybody else but but that is a different level of intuition as you said, this is a discussion, a debate that we've had a lot and probably shouldn't rehash right now. Why don't you give your general view about whether disgust or repugnance as an emotion gives us moral insight in the way that he at least says it does, if he doesn't provide much but in the way I do. I do want to say one quick thing um, about this, that I actually think that he has a desire for consistency that—, that um, you're not attributing to him out of maybe charity, but um, in his discussion with Pinker, I think Pinker pointed out licking your ice cream cone in public, it's pretty gross, but does that mean that it's wrong? And Cass just said, yep. <laughs> right. So I, I think. Well, that's that, just stupid. I mean, right? <laughs> I mean, I, like, I don't think he was joking. I, I think, though, that we. And I want to hear your view on this, but we clear. God damn it! There's a fucking leaf blower right outside my window right now. Can you it's hear it? Repugnant. I can. Our our brains almost automatically separate things that we find sort of morally gross and things that we find just disgusting, like taking a shit. We just don't. Our brains don't make the connection of that's morally wrong. Um, right. Um, even at the level of just purely descriptive psychological, it's just not true that people make that leap. I'm sure. Right. So, so there's like you can imagine a Venn diagram of things that are disgusting, things that are immoral, and then the sort of shared area between the two of things we find disgusting and, and immoral. And I agree with you, right? Like we don't just think that, you know, if you just tell me, oh, like Tam Tamler went number two. Although I, I do remember Paul Bloom and I having this discussion. He thinks, yeah, at some implicit level, you're making a moral evaluation that that's bad. But I, I don't I just don't believe that. Uh, Sounds like a terminological dispute. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe. So, yeah, this this gets at, gotta go, gotta at, go. at this <laughs> at this this body of research on immoral psychology. Discuss has been used as such an illustrative, maybe emotion to um, to try to illustrate the relationship between morality and emotion. And I think it's just a weird one, right? I think most things that we that have to do with morality are way more dominated by emotions like anger and empathy and whatever. Um, but for disgust, so the argument goes that, look, we have this feeling, this emotional state that is it has a certain behavioral aspect to it, a strong avoidance response, like that tr traditional sort of face of disgust, the, even the protruding of the tongue. It essentially seems to be an emotion that evolved to keep us from eating crap that would make us sick, and then maybe you know maybe later on um, to even keep us from touching things or people who look like they might make us sick. So the argument goes that this is this is just an emotion that is dedicated to pathogen avoidance. You know, it's not a 
it's not a really bright emotion. It's not, it's not really smart because there are plenty of things that would make us sick, um, like shaking hands, that don't disgust us. And there are plenty of things that disgust us, but they have actually no no relation to making us sick, right? Like somebody with a birthmark is a common example. Amputees is another example people give. There's no reason. We know intellectually that it's not like you can catch amputation, but but somehow it's like a, a, a body that's not right. Um, and so this, this emotion that evolved really for, for the sake of pathogen avoidance, and this is, I think, the critical step, which I actually don't agree with. This is where I part ways with Dan Kelly and many psychologists is that this emotion was co-opted evolutionarily in order to serve the role of enforcing norms. And I think it's in that statement that co-opting or acceptation is a whole lot that bears on the, as you point out in your review, that really would bear on the normative justification about this emotion. So so let's just- so let's talk about that just to clarify for the listeners. What does that mean that the disgust mechanism was co-opted by um, for norm enforcement and norm? Right. So the argument here is that something that evolution has already found. Right. Right. It's just already there. It's an efficient way to you know forgive me for anthropomorphizing natural selection, but it's hard not to. Um, but it's a way for natural selection to just not have to create something brand new, but say like this is already here. And in fact, it works really well in this domain that's also critical for survival. You can imagine that that adhering to group norms um, is is good for your survival, because if you don't, then you get kicked out of the group and you starve and you die, whatever. So natural selection actually used. Uh, the existing reaction to germs, poop, disease, whatever, and used it as as a as an emotion that would also have selective pressure um, for norm enforcement, such that people who had this disgust reaction would also get additional survival value because it kept them more in line. Um, so that somebody who violated a group norm, um, other people would feel disgust for them or they would feel disgusted at the thought of violating the group norm and so they wouldn't do it. And so therefore there is additional selective pressure to have this discussed because it helps. So just to compare this idea to some another emotion like anger, we feel anger say if someone threatens our child or something yeah. like that. And or, this and, right. and that like that's a very useful emotion. It commits us to act in ways that are maybe short term irrational but long term good for the our our offspring and Right, and all the and, ways that like the yeah. pre commitment ways that Bob Frank yeah. talks about that we've talked about before and you know, maybe in other ways as well. And so the idea and, is discussed is just another one of those emotions that natural selection has access to now because, oh, it's already there. Right, right. And here is, I think, a critical distinction um, that I don't remember if we talked about, but uh, Roger Hiner-Soroya, who's a psychologist um, in the UK um, at University of Kent, has pointed out nicely, which is the difference between disgust, like that basic, basic disgust, like the gross doubtness, and an emotion like anger is that disgust is really an emotion that uh, it's an associative emotion, whereas anger is an appraisal emotion. So for anger, you have to kind of think this, you know, Tamler stole 
20 bucks from me. Now I'm pissed. But when I find out that, in fact, I was wrong, that the $20 was in my wallet the whole time, I might have some lingering physiological, you know, heart rate acceleration or whatever. But I'm not angry at you anymore. Like, my appraisal has changed. Right. Um, disgust is not like that. Disgust is – it's almost more like just a reflexive uh, by by contamination, by association kind of emotion where there's a gross thing. You touch that gross thing. Now you're gross. It's it's a dumb emotion, right? It's like, and when you think about it, that's the good kind of way in which you would have an emotion protect you against disease, because that's how diseases work, right? Way before we had so a you're germ, it's more theory. inflexible. It's infle- It's it's inflexible in that way. Um, it's very flexible in the sense that it's easy to just by association make somebody disgusting, right? Um, but it is different in in that. The flexibility doesn't come from the ability to change your judgment about what's going on in the environment. Pretty much like you touched poop, you're gross, and there's not much that you can do to change that, right? Like you're just gross. So let me see if I understand you properly in the moral context. So if somebody is grossed out by homosexuality, they might like the thing with the wallet, think, oh, well, they're not doing anything wrong, but then... Having said that, they're not going to – they'll still turn away in Brokeback Mountain when the guys are kissing. Right. I think there's a real interesting distinction there because I think that we as a field and just in general, we lump these together. Like when I say that I'm just morally disgusted by that action, I think that most of the time when we're disgusted by something, we're just disgusted by the low-level properties. Like the thought as a heterosexual man, the thought of two men having sex might gross you out. In the same way that any sex act that you're not into might gross you out, right? right. Like all kinds of things, like you just have this visceral sense because because sexuality is like that. Like we like things we like and we're kind of grossed out by things we don't like. And I think that that feeds into uh, an appraisal that's currently there that is wrong, right? So, so this is where I think the real relationship is. I have a cultural norm that um, homosexuality is wrong because that's the way I was raised. It seems wrong or unnatural for, for reasons like Cass. So Cass gives these reasons why he thinks cloning is wrong. To the extent that you can combine that with a low-level grossed outness, then you have like an extra powerful norm. It's almost like what Sean Nichols has argued. It's like when you tag the norm with the feeling, then it's a really powerful norm. Right. right. So let me try to argue, not sure I believe this, but that it's more of a continuum than you're allowing. So... We talked about that Louis episode where that woman appraised the situation that Louis had done the right thing, and yet was Which, had had this episode of Louis. Louis didn't fight back when stepped to by some drunk high school kid in a in a coffee shop, and the woman lost all respect for him <laughs> and yeah. had kind of contempt for him, even though she didn't think that was right. So she appraised it differently, but she couldn't shake the feeling. That's Isn't that what you're saying disgust is so, doing as well? And you say that disgust is dumber than these other emotions because once you realize, oh, there's nothing for me to be angry at, you can— 
you'll stop feeling it for the most part. Um, Whereas with disgust, it isn't like that. If you're grossed out, you're grossed out no matter how you appraise the situation. And I'm saying some of these other emotions like anger maybe or like the contempt that she was feeling Uh, are also dumb like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. I think that she is – her reaction isn't as dumb. I think she can't spell out the reasons why she's still like put off by his cowardice. But it's – I think it's different. Like if somebody – came and and talked to Louis, they wouldn't be a coward. Like, it's still some appraisal that he has acted dishonorably, even if she can't really, right? Like, if that appraisal is... That's like saying it's still some appraisal, like, like he does really have shit on his hands, or... It's No, I mean, I I literally think that when it comes to grossness, there are so many instances in which, for instance, what Paul Rosen has, has shown, right? Like, you bake chocolate into feces and you ask people if they'll eat it they're just even though they absolutely know it to, to right. like a shape of feces they absolutely know and they're right. still unwilling to do it i think it, fe- it feels a bit different than sure. uh, right like than even the even what she's saying like i don't know man you just still seem weak right. you know it's more there like i don't know why i can't spell it out Right. Uh, I guess my question to you more is I, I agree that disgust is dumber, but yeah. isn't is is it a different in kind or is it just there's a spectrum of emotions, uh some that are more inflexible to learning new facts than others, and disgust is on the far end of the spectrum, but it is a spectrum, it is a continuum. So you, I mean there's no emotion that will change. Like look at love. There's no emotion that will change automatically, right? I guess the question is whether or not your your belief about the external world is what's causing you to have the emotion. And I, I guess that's the view that I have of most of the things that we put into the category emotion. Like even a low-level fear, um, you're like, no, I might die if I go in that elevator. You can't shake that thought. And that's why therapies that get you to like really believe that you won't die actually work, right? Like like they they'll expose you over and over again so you realize – that your beliefs are just fundamentally wrong about this and, and that can work. I mean, but disgust, I may, you know, maybe, right. Like, right. You, cause you can shake it. Like you can stop being grossed out by poop. Um, if you just expose yeah, I mean, yourself enough to do it, that, but it, those same kind of techniques for OCD people who are so like, like you who are really disgusted <laughs> by, just normal household things. But like in the prototypical case, like you're, I mean, you're probably right. It would be weird that you would have such, especially with a, like minds as, as sort of fluid as ours, that we would have like a completely concrete, you know, completely dichotomous distinction between associative emotions and, and the appraisal based ones. But it really does seem to be the case. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. yeah. Charlie knows that if we get, if we use disgust too much, that he's, he's sort of shit out of luck. <laughs> Why people always kissing their dogs. Um, but, Can you kiss this face? Yeah, I do kiss my dog. It's a very, it's, it is a very white person thing to do. So what, the reason that I'm granting that it's on a continuum is because human beings just have like an extraordinary like, capability of thinking about their emotions and being able to impose them. But I think actually that there is a really, really simple way in which disgust is reflexive and I guess low on the cognitive, uh, you know, if you put things on a scale, it's like 
requires very, very little thought. Like the minute, the minute that somebody who has disgust sees vomit on the ground, they like will feel the disgust without even, you know, with very little thought. One of the reasons that I think it's so powerful in rhetoric, for instance, is that that process of association makes it really easy for you to associate disgusting properties with a group or an individual social group where you say like, Look at these, like, gay guys. Look at, like, they eat the poo-poo, right? And this one is eating the poo-poo all over the place. We do not want this sickness. This is sick, and it's therefore deviant. We do not want it. Like, that is such a dumb appeal to, like, the grossness of poop. (laughs) Where it's like, well, if heterosexuals ate poop... Okay, right, but there's two ways you could argue about that, right? Like... There's multiple ways that that's a poor argument against homosexuality. Right. Uh, first and foremost, maybe that they don't eat the poop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gay people, um, like straight people, might do a lot so of the rates of the rates yeah. of poop eating are the same as what yeah. You're saying, like, I don't know if, if that's been studied, but um, but or yeah. So the number one, and then but number two, what you could argue like. Dan Kelly argues is even if they did eat the poo-poo, the fact that that's disgusting isn't any reason to think that what they're doing is wrong. Right. And that's where I think that you're spot on in your in your review of Dan's book, because and this is why I went to great lengths to separate myself from this co-opted view. So mm-hmm. so just to 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 say what really I believe is that that the emotion of disgust really is and has always been about avoiding pathogens and disease. It's kind of a dumb, but very, very strong, easily induced association based emotion that does a pretty decent job of keeping us away from bodily fluids of other people and like weird strangers. Right. I don't think that it was accepted to enforce norms. I think that nowadays we, we can kind of use disgust to enforce norms, but it's not a very reliable emotion. I think that when we say that you, I'm disgusted by you morally, that we're using it metaphorically. Nat, you don't think natural selection through this process co-opted the disgust mechanism as a means of norm enforcement. You think it's just doing what its primary function Exactly. And, and it's pretty just- bad at that, too. Like, I right. think that as you point out, like, if I had a justif- if I had to use the disgust emotion to justify as rational, like my responses of disgust, I would have a bad time because it, just like other emotions, natural selection doesn't give a flying fuck about like the accuracy rates. Or a false negative, I guess, is much worse than a false positive. Exactly. Uh, it's like, let me find the shit from there. natural selections. Because if you're just disgusted by vomit, you know, like that doesn't hurt you. Evolutionarily no, right. speaking. Right. Right. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. But if you weren't disgusted by something that would kill you, that would be very bad. Right. But like if tapioca were the only food available for me to eat and that's all I could eat and I was grossed out by tapioca, like obviously that's just not a good, right? It's just no, pro, this, even though tapioca has the consistency of vomit to me, right? Like, and I'm grossed out by it, right? Like you would just, I would just be like, well, the rational thing here to do is defeat my fucking disgust at tapioca okay so i think if you argue that that disgust was never co-opted by our you know all the mechanisms that are recruited for norm enforcement then i think you can also make or you can draw the conclusion that dan kelly draws which is 
it doesn't give you any moral information. Right. But, and, but Dan that can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Once you admit that disgust has been co-opted, right. then I don't I think that's the unstable position. That is the unstable position. I think yeah. you pointed out right where you say, well, look, look, it's either giving you information or it's not in the same way that it would give you information about disease or not. And so if you say that it's this like really reliable source of information about what's going to cause disease, um, you can't pick and choose those things that it's signaling you about when when it comes to right unless right. you have the an fact external that it standard. Wasn't, like it was co-opted later in evolutionary time doesn't necessarily mean that it's less accurate. It doesn't necessarily mean not only that, but like in the same way that you know anger also misfires and all and all the, and love misfires and all right. these emotions misfire at at some level and. We don't like decide which of them to trust as a general rule and which not to based on when they appeared in the evolutionary timeline. Right. And the reason that I can say, well, look, I can extrinsically evaluate the accuracy like of the informative signal of disgust when it comes to disease is because I have a I have an external reason to check whether or not things were gonna, are going to actually give me a disease. Turns out sometimes very clean test tubes will like kill me and sometimes like really gross looking people will help me right and so i have this external standard when it comes to norm enforcement if you're trying to use disgust as a way to evaluate whether or not something is morally wrong that would be a really weird thing for evolution to be tracking like you know like the metaphysically correct well no no okay right but like whether something transgressed a norm (laughs) um, right if it was tracking that then Right. You know, in which case, I, yeah. Sense. And if there was just at that descriptive level, like, look, we use it to, to whether to, to inform us whether or not it's transgressing a norm, which I don't think is the case. But you don't. Think I, it's the case, I right? know. But I want to be fair to people who do. And in a second, I'll t- tell you the evidence that people use who argue that, that, right, that, that it does. Um, but even then, I would say at best, it's, it's a noisy signal that you need some external reason. What if it tracks norms of like being you know, mean to people of other ethnicities, then you can discard it or not. And this is, I think, where that would mean that you need some sort of a rational approach to morality and where you can evaluate whether or not the disgust is appropriate. And at that point, like, what the fuck is the disgust for? Right. What's it doing? Right. And you since you resist that you would have an external standard by which to judge these things, you resist his conclusion that sometimes you should discard it and sometimes you should keep because you're like, well, how do you decide? Well, no, I, I don't resist that conclusion. I think I resist the conclusion that it means nothing, that the disgust means nothing. If he's right that disgust has been co-opted to play this role, because I think the same arguments that would lead you to discard disgust would have to lead you to discard the other emotions as well as giving you any information. I think there's reason to distrust disgust more than some of the other emotions, but not reason to fully discard one and keep the others. And is the reason that you think that, that it's more suspicious is is for the reasons that I kind of gave about the, the dumb nature of it? Yeah, yeah. exactly that. Right. Yeah. And there's so many cases where, you know, for other reasons, I don't think something's morally wrong, but I'm disgusted. Whereas with anger, there's just way fewer of those things that I'm ang- really angry at, but I don't think is that that isn't immoral or something like that. You know, Right. Like, and the discussion really with anger isn't even ought you be angry or not. Usually it's like, OK, like you're angry, like 
about police shootings or shootings of police or whatever, right? Like the question really is how, how should you calibrate your response? Right. It's, you know, it's, it's not, not, people aren't like, it's angry. not justified to feel anger or whatever. Right. Yeah. So that, um, yeah, so yeah. So I, so I'm on board with, I just think that, you know, either you're going to go full rationalist like you and your buddy Emmanuel yeah. and say that these emotions are irrelevant or you admit that some of that that emotions do carry some sort of information and there are certain ones that we trust more than others as a general rule but you know but i think for good reason it's all but i think but i think for good reason right like if you were if you were the kind of person to get angry it was a way miscalibrated response like people would be like, wow, man, you should just stop being that angry at stuff. But in general, because anger has that appraisal, like where you judge that somebody has done something wrong, that I think it's just going to be more reliable. Yeah, I totally agree. What I find interesting is that you're allowed to hold your normative position because you disagree with Dan Kelly at the descriptive level. Right. Um, you were saying – that other people that other people disagree with me. So so people like uh, Hannah Chapman and Adam Anderson have written um, about this. What's critical for these arguments is the argument that it's the same feeling of like gut revulsion that you feel for like poop and vomit. Um, you're going to have for purely moral violations. So like and here really matters that it's a moral violation that doesn't already include some gross shit with it, because that obviously is going to make you feel disgusted right so it's like i stole something and stepped on poop at the same time like you know that's not what i mean what i mean is like full-on like just fairness violations for instance and so um so say getting uh, unfair offers in ultimatum games so they actually have a paper in science a few years back showing that um when people receive unfair offers in an ultimatum game from somebody else they actually make the disgust face and so there's there are Using um, facial EMG, they they measure the wrinkling of the nose, that like typical disgust face, and they show that the same face is made for like gross tastes, for disgusting pictures, and in this case for receiving unfair offers in the ultimatum game. They say, see, this is real disgust reaction. It must have been co-opted because there's nothing pathogeny about getting an unfair offer. Right. Right. Um, now, then it really turns on. Whether or not you think that the facial display of disgust is a good marker for somebody actually being grossed out. So what I've argued is that there are reasons to think that it's not. So even when we mean disgust metaphorically, I think we can wrinkle our nose like that. And what I often show is a little clip of Stefan Marbury uh, in a basketball sideline of a basketball game making that clear disgust face, like wrinkling in the nose, like, ugh. And when I ask people what, what he's watching, like unless you follow sports or know the lingo or whatever, they don't realize that there's a metaphor for a sick dunk. Right. Like it's just gross. It's disgusting. That, that Right. Now, I don't think that he's actually experiencing the gut-wrenching, disgusting emotion that is pathogen avoidance. I think that it's just a really cool metaphor where you go, oh, that was sick. Yeah. Right. No, that's right. And that's in a lot of sports like baseball. Yeah. Like pitches they called like filthy. Really? And once that. Yeah. Like that pitch was filthy. That means like that was like unhittable. You know, I think that metaphor is so ingrained into it that now you react 
like that, that they'll make that face. At, exactly. And that's, saying, and, right? and that's why I think that the face yeah. isn't like the golden sort of like sign that, that the emotion has in fact occurred. But how it, would you tease those it, Well, it does. About, it places yeah. the burden on me, right? Because I, I don't know. I don't know what the best, what the best piece of evidence for um, there, because you can say you're disgusted. You can make the face. I don't know. Right. Like I, like the burden, I guess, would be on me to say, well, actually, you need this phys- particular physiological reaction. But we're just not even good enough at knowing how to measure emotions yeah. in the first place physiologically. Um, but the other piece of I evidence- know. Wait, experimental philosophy. That will <laughs> settle it. <laughs> yeah. Another piece, though, that I think is missing, and I've talked to Adam Anderson um, about collaborating on something like this, is if it was really co-opted by natural selection to serve this sort of moral norm purpose. You would expect that the same word pathogen avoidance discussed, that core grossed out discussed, that same word would be used for that moral sense across all languages. And I, in, in Spanish, at least, it's not really the case in the same way that it is in English, where you, you say that person is gross when they commit a moral violation. It's not, I mean, people would say, like, they would understand it. And there's a metaphor of, you know, a dirty player, right? it's still there. But that term for like that, I'm just morally disgusted by George Bush's foreign policy or whatever. You, usually you would use another word like anger, right? In, and so I, I think Spanish. if the— uh, yeah. What about other languages? This is something you can We don't—that's uh, what we're trying to get ready to do. Yeah, so Roger, Hinersoria, and I, and Yoel and Adam Anderson, we've all talked about collaborating on on this. And I think this is a really good—it's like we, we ignore cross— cultural research a bit too much because we're always in people i say we i mean people like me who who believe in sort of psychological universals um and we're trying to find the similarities across uh, across people i think that it's too easy to ignore um the the real cultural differences so that's really interesting so my first inclination was to disagree with you and to think that we really are, and I think that Trump is a great example of this, people find him so personally repelling, and they are disgusted by just... Not not just his racist remarks or but just the you know, his boasting, his like so these are norms. These aren't necessarily moral things, but they find just the way he carries himself and his pomposity just to be really repellent or disgusting or gross. I mean, I've I've heard that's a new term that people are using a lot these days for things that aren't necessarily immoral, but they're just, you know, they're like not, that's not comme il faut, as the French say, you know, it's like not done. Um, and, but now yeah. I think maybe if you're right that these metaphors once they're in place, have the power to, like, actually draw that reaction out of you, you know, in the face. The I face think so. That's that. why the yeah. sports example is so, it's so compelling yeah. to me, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's so clear that we've just adopted that language. Uh, um, Paul used to use the example of, like, when you say that you're somebody like me would say, I'm lusting after that new Apple uh, MacBook or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so you know, I go, oh, yeah, I love that. Mac. But I don't I'm not really like I'm not. It's <laughs> so, so I think it's understudied and and I think it's still an open question. And I think that, like, even though there's been a ton of discussed work, this is just not nearly enough. There's barely any work on what other languages use. Like one paper recently came out, uh, you know, and what seems clear is that 
there is not one word in every language that means the same thing as disgust does in English. Let's say that you're wrong. Do you think the sort of meta-ethical or normative debate hangs on whether the co-opting thesis is correct or your thesis is correct? Are we going to be able to draw meta-ethical normative conclusions from that purely descriptive or psychological? I more think that if you want to make the claim that disgust is informative, that you have to believe something like it's tracking, it's tracking something that we consider real. Like it's right to me, honestly, I wouldn't even enter my mind to, to have made meta ethical, hold any meta ethical beliefs based on whether or not these emotions are tracking one thing or another. I, I like, I actually think, or less grandiosely, yeah. just that it's information that you might want to take into account in reflective equilibrium, right? Yeah, right. I think that the cognitive nature of some emotions means that they should be plugged into a reflective equilibrium more often than discussed. The reflexive nature of it, the sort of But do dumb... you think it should be plugged in at all? Dan says no, it shouldn't be plugged in at all. It... This, is, this is where I... My life gets a little complicated because on the <laughs> so for purely moral arguments, I think no, it shouldn't be plugged in at all. But there is a lot of social behavior that clearly I'm okay thinking. Like when I when I'm like with my daughter, like I want to teach her about like clean habits and like you know. And to me, poor Bella. Yeah, I know. By dint of being disgusting, is a good enough reason to justify not doing something right? Like so, it's gross is enough for me to say like this is why you shouldn't do it so you know anything from just like picking your nose in public um you know to to like having a dirty room or whatever i don't tell her that the angels are crying but like i'm definitely crying because i'm grossed out right you know i had this argument with my brother-in-law so he won't use sponges so he does the dishes, oh, yeah. he only uses paper towels, and he doesn't use sponges, which yeah. just seems crazy to me. It's like, no, it's totally disgusting to have, like, this sponge there that you, like, use the day before, and it's this water, and, like, and I oh, said, yeah. yeah, but that's crazy. Like, everyone uses sponges. Sponges are fine. Like, how, like just that it's disgusting isn't enough. It doesn't give you disease. It doesn't do anything. And he's like... And and he essentially did the slippery slope. He's like, look, so is, you know, it's also fine to take a shit in your house and then just clean it up afterwards. Or like, you know, he was essentially saying at a, like making the argument that I make sometimes, like at a base level, it's going to bottom out as it's just disgusting. Yeah. I think the only point of disagreement you guys probably have is whether or not sponges are disgusting because it yeah. actually, it, right. It's, it's not that you think that disgusting things ought not be discouraged. It's just right. that you think that, right. But it is, you're right. That but with disgust also we're much more comfortable saying you know teach his own like I don't really care that he you I guess it's bad for the environment to use paper towels that much but you know I don't really care about the environment so right um, it, it's it's sorry, actually Jennifer. you know it's <laughs> it's interesting to note that like disgust probably it would probably take a really it would be very difficult to get someone to feel disgust at using paper towels, right? Like you could probably, you might say I'm disgusted by people who are wasteful, 
But it's not the same as like learning yeah. that germs lurk in sponges. Yeah, I, I can see that you already have sympathy with my brother-in-law, um, but most uh, yeah. people use sponges, and, they, I, and they, they're fine with it. Like I I'm grossed sponges. out by a totally, you know, a sponge that hasn't been squ- squeezed out and is smelling of mildew. Yeah. Short of that, I'm not disgusted by sponges at all. I like a sponge, you know. Yeah, yeah I agree. I'm just I pointing feel out a that sponge like, right now that that I think that you he was much more prepared to acquire disgust for sponges because look, he learned about their disease carrying properties. Than oh, he I don't would think be. so. That's oh, not really? how he was describing it. So what disgust? He doesn't think that sponge? it carries germs or anything like that. Uh, I mean, that wasn't his justification. His justification was it's disgusting. It, it's not disgusting because it breeds germs. No. Oh, see, he doesn't think, care about germs. Oh, interesting. He's just he's just grossed out by sponges. Yeah, like even a brand new sponge. I mean, like I think if if he had a spon- a new sponge every single time, that would be fine. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> that sort of um, goes against the whole purpose of a sponge. Right, right. That's just a really expensive paper towel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not there. I'm not at the point. You know, I do get disgusted when sponges get mildewy and i like blood you know you can put it in the microwave for like two minutes and it cleans but that was the point like he thought that was where that was all the just i mean it it is it is like your entire ethical view (laughs) well that's but it's what you say with bella right you say the same thing it's just disgusting i don't need to give a further justification you're right that i don't care that much if somebody else does it i you know i might care about the the hygiene habits of my friends and close you know somebody i'm dating or somebody that i'm very close to but i you wouldn't like my hygiene habit. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. This is why we only see each other like twice every <laughs> three years or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when for most things with disgust, we're really happy to like, I don't care what somebody else is or isn't disgusted by. <laughs> it just doesn't bother me. Yeah. So here's a question. Is this a way to distinguish disgust from some of the other emotions is that we are more comfortable with disagreement with anger if you know i'm not comfortable saying that like if somebody's not angry say at the the, at the police violence i i think they're wrong but if they're not disgusted by something yeah i don't care if they don't have empathy for like somebody who's like totally suffering in front of them like i judge them but if they're if they're not disgusted by somebody who's smelly like you know I could disagree yeah. with them, but it's more like an yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, an, it's a purely aesthetic matter of taste. So yeah. that might be a, a, a way in which it's still a continuum. It's but... still a continuum. And the truth is, right, like we've been talking about sort of these, these emotions as natural kinds and like just setting aside the question as to whether they are or not, but like admitting that, you know, there might be these rough differences between these kinds of emotional reactions or not. What we haven't talked about is whether there's any reason to think of moral norms as its own category. And I think this is just like, that's also just a real weird I was continuum. wondering about that too, because I, I, you have a paper with EOL that, and somebody else that we read, a very short paper. We'll yeah, Chelsea Healy on my, yeah. I, I couldn't tell, like, but what you were saying essentially is what you've said on the podcast that, that, Discussed at most, you think it makes things that are seem wrong more wrong, right? That's yeah. what you say. Yeah, like it amplifies. Like it but could amp- I couldn't tell if part of your argument was depending on there being a big distinction between moral norms and other norms. 
No, because I don't think not only are emotions and natural selection not going to track moral norms. Like, I don't know. I don't even really know where I would start to make that distinction. I Between kind of just norms and just regular and just regular norms. Yeah. I, I mean, is it? Yeah. I, I wonder if that debate is terminological. I mean, there are certain groups of norms that we feel more strongly about that we are less comfortable with um, disagreement. And at a certain point, we start calling those moral norms right but we yeah. don't have to like no we don't and I, th- I think like i when i say moral norm i'm expressing sort of a thought out commitment to a particular kind of of definition of moral but i don't think nature had like even if i think i'm metaphysically right like i don't think nature in any fucking way like would have made that distinction right like, so that that would sort of make the debate between the john height people five foundations versus people who think there are only two foundations of that that are really moral foundations that would just be a pseudo debate on that view right yeah, I, yeah right i mean i think that as as when we had jesse graham on i think that def, that defining what a moral norm is is sort of a necessary endeavor before you call something a moral foundation and that 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 part of it so i just you know, it's just I a don't. foundation. We like exactly. It's a foundation yeah. of social life, right? Like the yeah. fact that we draw these in-group, out-group distinctions, that we care about these. Like that's just a foundation of life, right? Like, I, like why would nature care about you know, like my the most I can say is like maybe what we mean by moral norms is sometimes things that bring harm to individuals, but we don't. But we mean much more than that, right? Yeah, we like, definitely yeah. mean more than that. Yeah. The thing that we mean by moral norms are using someone as a mere means to, <laughs> rather than treating that person as an end. As a, as a rear end. As, as a, a rear end. <laughs> using that person as a rear end. <laughs> I like that. That could be the title. So Rear ends in themselves. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think anytime you even have an inkling that something is a pseudo debate, it almost definitely is. It probably is. is. Yeah. The question, and this is, I think we should probably wrap up, but given that we've reached a point of agreement, but the question that maybe for a future podcast is, is what, what you do think you can hang your moral hat? Like what, like. If you were going to try to make that distinction, what, how would you do it? Yeah. And how you in particular, like what your view has to say about whether or not this is, you know. See, I don't think, but I wouldn't. Like my view is very comfortably aligned with not wanting to make that hard distinction, but just seeing some norms as we're less tolerant of disagreement. We feel more strongly about them. We so just at a descriptive level, the things just that like I a, jump up and down more about. Yeah, about. you know what really bothers me. Yeah, is when I hold the door open for somebody, and they don't even like give a even like slightest acknowledgement of thanks. Yeah. It's like a, to, to me, that's like the m- most common moral violation I ever encounter. You know, I, I down here, everyone sort of holds the door open for. But when you go up north, I've noticed I, I still have that like norm of I hold the door open for people and I find people are much less appreciative. And in fact, sometimes they think of it almost as like a burden. Yeah. Now they have to walk faster to the door. <laughs> Like, yeah, or they think like fuck off like who do you think you are no show some fucking appreciation that i actually like went out of my way to notice that you were behind me 
And yeah, I really, I think that's when Jesus comes and is dividing the good and the evil people um, to take to heaven, yeah. um, he, that, that that will be a piece of data. Like he'll use surveillance tapes from doors. You know what else is a piece of data? <laughs> Do you return the cart, the supermarket oh, cart back you, to the thing? Oh, what kind of a monster just leaves <laughs> it there? Oh my God! I hate those people. Uh, and, and that can actually cause harm, like when you're trying to park, and you know, like there's like one in the middle. They think that leaving in the fucking middle is like, yeah, that's like some sort of like. I am sorry. Like, just just learn some fucking manners. Those people disgust me. You know, it's, in New Orleans, there's not that norm at all. Like most cities, I think they have their segment of people who don't do it, but at least it's thought to be right to return the cart in new orleans like nobody does it and i do it just because i think it's the right thing it's like a the one objective moral value i think is out there that you return the cart but people would look at me like like i was like like holier than thou or something like that like so i'm like (laughs) like like, fuck you you think you're better than me kind of like you're ruining it for all of us (laughs) so like i actually would feel sort of like shame about just returning the stupid cart to the thing Right. You, you might as well be a vegan. But I still right. did it. I was like, you know, again, a lot of like Jesus, where if I, I know it's right and even though I'm shunned and crucified. You're like, you're like at stage six in Kohlberg's moral reasoning. You've like reached the pit, like returning your shopping cart, even when there's a strong norm against it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that was that was fun. Tune in next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.